If you're a movie collector, you need Movies Anywhere. It pulls your favorite purchase movies from participating digital retailers into one central place. So you can finally say goodbye to scattered movie collections and hello to an organized library. With Movies Anywhere, you can watch your favorite movies on any compatible device whenever and wherever you want. Ready to grow and enjoy your digital collection? Visit MoviesAnywhere.com slash welcome and register for free. Registration with Movies Anywhere required. Open to U.S. residents 13 and over. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Hey, everyone. This is the Almost Rogue Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast and I have an awesome guest here and someone with a worldview that is very unique and there's someone that, that I've never had on the show before, but I'm really glad that he's here. His name is Dave Clear. Hey, man, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. How's it going, guys? Um, my name is Dave. Um, I am a uh, philosophy student um, and grad student at large, um, meaning that I just kind of pick classes from kind of anywhere. Um, I got into philosophy um, by chance when I had to take a um, class in philosophy for... Um, for my my basic general classes, um, as Elmo was talking about, I do have kind of a different outlook on uh, a lot of different things, and um, I generally consider myself to be like a Norse Buddhist. Um, so I take things from you know like the Norse gods like Thor and Odin. Everybody knows about those guys, and I also take aspects from Buddhism. So um, that's kind of like uh, if we're talking theist, uh, theism, that's kind of where where um, my view comes from, but I do see them very differently, and it's how uh, they kind of interlink together because most people wouldn't expect those to fit together. That's kind of interesting. And when when you say Norse Buddhism, it it mm -hmm. puts goes me back. It gets me, uh, you know, to this sh uh, episode I watched on the show Vikings on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this uh, the son of Ragnar. He what was his name? And he wasn't—he was into like uh, drugs and everything. But then he sort of found peace in his life with this uh, Buddhism. Yeah, uh, and yeah. He, he, he sort of went through this phase of the of having Buddhist ideals. Yeah, yeah. Of being was, a Viking, uh, though. Yeah, that one was. Yeah, Vitzer. Vitzer. Yeah. Yep. So, what are your thoughts? And like, uh, how? the hell did you <laughs> become a norse buddhist man originally i grew up as a, a christo pagan i don't know if that's a word that really most people would be uh, aware of my folks were they, they took aspects of um different ancient cultures and uh introduced them into christianity um 
basically the idea was that all gods exist. We just choose this God. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, my, my folks were always very open and just test everything out. You know, for a little while, I was just Buddhist. Uh, for a little while, I was Wiccan. And then, you know, it, it just kind of eventually called. I played a little while as an atheist. And, you know, uh, the, all of these things kind of ended up bringing about my metaphysical view of, of, uh, of, of that. And um, so for me, it was like I ended up just choosing these gods because they were the ones that um, most aligned with what I had for goals so that's there's a lot there and i want to go go back to the the parenting first okay uh so i i, I believe right and you would I, I believe you would agree with me that your parents are huge had huge influence uh to who you are now and and especially on what you believe in terms of of norse buddhism right uh, can you, uh, i want to let can you dive into the your parents worldview first and give you know give us a little background because that would yeah, uh, yeah. that is necessary right to understand yeah, sure so uh my folks were more geared at the um the uh interpretive view of the bible if that makes sense where where nothing is literal if anything so they didn't even really read the bible a whole lot um it was based on uh the idea that god is a um for them anyways was just like an ethereal thing it was uh, like it was god itself was nature uh sort of a lot like spinoza talks about um everything around us is god god is in all things so for my folks that was kind of they kind of just followed spinoza's footsteps obviously they didn't know who spinoza was but they, they went with that route and said that god was nature and so they revered nature in the same way that they revered god but the you there was a concept that you uh, threw out there which was that your parents you know believed that there were all pagans god gods sort of mm -hmm. existed but you only mm -hmm. chose this one what does that mean yeah yeah so uh my folks uh they looked at like i mentioned the ethereal god uh meaning like like it wasn't any specific god it was just what they called basically you could just replace god with nature for them right Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my, my ideas after I started going into philosophy a little bit more changed and kind of shifted away from what my folks were thinking. Um, like my metaphysics ended up coming down to a phenomenology of experience, definitely coming from like Kant uh, and, and his difference in his epistemology between, uh, between having the uh, phenomenal world and the nominal world. Um, in that we can only really know our own mind, like we can only know our perception. Uh, we basically have most colored glasses on. Um, so for this, it was it, it, like, I know it sounds really bad, but <laughs> it sounds crazy to most people, I should say. But like, as an example, I believe that Santa exists. I know that sounds really crazy and a lot of atheists like to throw it out there to say that, um, oh, okay, well, we'll just replace the word God with Santa and see how things work. It's all the same. But they're actually kind of proving the point of what I'm trying to get at is that Santa exists in our mind and the mind is the only thing that we can know it actually exists. Um, so if they're, they're in our mind somewhere, then they have to be there somewhere. So that makes it easy for you to kind of just pick and choose whatever gods you actually want just because they all exist in the mind. So I, I, I want to understand where you're coming from here. And mm -hmm. So let's talk about metaphysics. Okay. Sure. Um, metaphysics, right? It, 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 by definition, the ultimate reality in what it is. That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's a, the way to put it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, what do you think about metaphysics? Uh, where, where, where is the, where, where should we start? And in sort of, uh, you know, finding sure. answers to the truth. Sure. Sure. So, uh, the way I kind of defined it is a, define it is a little bit more in the academic sense. I mean, your your definition is pretty much the same thing. But uh, the way I view uh, metaphysics is the study of what things are. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, what what is this thing? Um, and, you know, I'm what would be, you know, like a dualist is generally what people would call me is I think that there is uh, things out in the universe somewhere, um, but there is also immaterial things like mind is a, is a classic example. Descartes actually came up with, uh, you know, most people know, know him for I think, therefore I am or I think and thinking things exist, so I must exist. Um, but one of his best arguments, I think, is actually um, the argument where he basically says you wake up in the morning. And you go to the bathroom to open up the door. You flick on the lights as you're looking in the mirror. And then all of a sudden you don't see anybody. Like you're just a floating. You're basically like a ghost, right? But you don't see anything. Um, but then he, he says that's that's possible to actually envision. And then he says, but now let's go the opposite direction. You wake up in the morning. You go to the bathroom. You flick on the lights. And lo and behold, there's no mind. He says that you can't imagine not having a mind, partly because you have to have a mind to imagine being in that mind. Um, but you can't imagine not having a body. So that's his way to kind of say that there's two different things, that they're two separate entities. They're not uh, the same thing. And that's kind of what I piggyback off of for my dualism. By the way, by, the, by, how, by how you define mind, mind is not the consciousness. Or, or for, is yeah, it? I mean, for, for me, yeah, that's has, that has a big part of what mind is. Uh, I mean, there are, you know, like subconscious things. So I don't want to sit here and say that mind purely is consciousness but uh, i would say all aspects that culminate into a personality if that makes sense so you know metaphysics right and uh, so you sort of uh, you're a bur- uh, you are in fact a dual substance dualist in the Correct, same, yep. in, so in the sense that there is a material world and there's an immaterial world which you know exactly. is, is where the realm of the mind you know it's th- that that's the medium for for the mind mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, there's a lot of questions to unpack there, but I, I wanna I wanna ask then. Um, so what, uh, we humans, right? We are you know individual creatures. You know, we in our in our brains. That's where our consciousness actually uh, mm-hmm. lies in. But do you sort of hold like is God this? this uh universal consciousness like uh like the universal mind or then we're all just part of this one big mind or is, or is it different what are your thoughts on that i get you yeah so there, there's um a, a lot of people that think that way you know i know a few few uh people that i've talked to in the past have had that view where uh, you know there's a collective consciousness and that collective consciousness is god um for me uh it actually comes to this is where my buddhist side will come in a little bit and uh-huh. that i don't particularly think that we exist i know that that sounds crazy because i just spoke about dualism and the mind having this ex- uh, being the existence um Interesting. But, the, but the idea is that we're always in this constant state of flux including our personalities so from one moment to the next i'm not the same person i may be building on the person that i was but I'm no longer that person, um, even after I'm done with this interview. But what do you mean by we don't exist, though? Uh, because mm-hmm. we, uh, we are, in fact, in a constant state of flux, right? And uh, mm-hmm. you know, so, but at, at, you know, at the single point, there is something you have to call that is you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in right, turn, right. 
and that is what we call in a biodefinition that what is essentially you and right. uh, so and of course there, there by our definition of identity and our and personality there is that you know like a, a constant chain of of essence sort of riding along mm-hmm. in that uh, chain of flux and even though you know it's constantly changing it, the essence is still there but mm-hmm. how, how do you look at it i actually uh in in there was a, a course called death by yale um and uh i think one of his thought experiments they summed it up really well. And the way that he put it was basically, I want you to imagine like a train and you're looking at this train in front of you. You can see the, you can see the engine and you can see the caboose. You can see the whole thing. That's for me, at least that is what you are. And the, you know, the, the caboose is when you were born and the engine is when you die, essentially, like let's just put it that way. That's the course of your life. However, mm-hmm. let's put, let's put, uh, you know, like maybe there's a place that's filling these, uh, the, the cars, uh, for the train and the, they're filling it up, but that obscures our view. Um, can we say that there's like two, like it's blocking our view right in the middle of the train. Can we, we see the caboose and we see the engine, but we don't see the middle. We can't say that the, mm-hmm. that train is necessarily linked. Um, and for me, it's the, the passage of time that does that. Uh, that obscures, you know, that we can't go back in time, we can't go forward. And the only way we can go, we can only go forward in time at the constant rate of time, right? So for me, it's kind of like, I can't guarantee that the person I was yesterday, say, is the person I am now, because we have this passage of time. So I have a pretty strong skeptical bone bone in my body for that. So that's kind of how I see like personhood, if that makes sense. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you 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 know don't exist. You know, like uh, right, exactly. Yeah. So, so how do you, how can you say you know like uh, if you are trying to make sense of everything here without contradicting yourself, saying mm-hmm. that there is a you and then you don't exist? How does that work? Right. I know it's I know it's really a really tough concept, but the the way that it works is like like again you have to imagine that train and like we're always in this con even just the last minute when we started this conversation. I can't tell you that I am the person that told you. Oh, I see. Anything. So, so how you define you is that in in the the, the person with the with the whole lifetime exactly, of experiences. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because that's not because I'm not, I can't go back to that experience since I can't travel back to it. All mm. I have is that memory of it. I can't mm. say that that was me. So I'm I'm always in that constant state of flux, like I mentioned. Mm. So I can't like even just the last moment. Time marches on no matter what, even in the last millisecond, I'm, you know, it, it cha- time changes so fast mm-hmm. in that way that I can't guarantee that my last memory that I ever mm-hmm. had, even in my phenomenal world where I'm experiencing yeah. the computer screen in front of me. So mm-hmm. my idea of personal identity is that we exist. I mean, yeah, well, there, there's a train there, but we can't it's obscured so i can't tell you yeah. that for sure there's you know but, but in terms of like a uh, like uh you know like a uh what do you call this an immaterial existence you, you there is a in like a, an existence there for for yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah i call but, it like an enduring self uh, enduring self hmm. okay so i uh, in terms of this uh this is this has a lot of entailments in terms of you know ethics and mm-hmm. you know, even, even politics society but uh, i want to go go uh, you know go uh, continue this route that we we went through with in terms of uh, metaphysics so um origins 
<laughs> okay, so mm-hmm. are you probably a naturalist then, or because but but you are a substance dualist. So um, so are we speaking specifically about my dualism here, or are we origins like the universe and existence and everything? Oh sure, sure. Um, so me, I I actually like to follow a little bit in Piro's footsteps. Uh, Piro was a um a, a really strong skeptic, one that it was sad it's only a story but apparently his students had to stop him from jumping off a cliff because he wasn't convinced that he would die if he if he jumped off um but his view basically his his general underlying standard that exit that carries on to today is that there are equally valid or cogent arguments for both sides of the argument right so i i the way i see it is that he well he wants to say that because that is true because we can't tell which one is actually truth, even if they're completely contradictory, uh, then we are to uh, abstain from making a decision between those two points. And he thought that that led to like a state of peace called ataraxia, but um, I actually want to carry it further and, and go with Aristotle, um, who said in his golden mean, basically saying that in between there, somewhere in between there is actual truth, or at least you'll get closer to truth if you go somewhere in the middle. So um, for me, where the universe comes about coming from that um it's really looked at as like i can't like i was mentioning about personal identity i can't go back in time so for me experience is one of the uh big epistemological views of mine i have to have that experience to uh validate it right um so i can't go into the past to see when or how the universe came about all we can do is reason about it and due to that uh, you know, there's been some good arguments about, you know, uh, whether a, an omnipotent deity created the universe or not. And uh, usually what I try to say with that is I say, well, that's a possibility. I, I could say uh, God or an omnipotent being or the Jotun, the, the giants uh, set in motion what happened. Um but then that also entails its own contradiction where, you know, people will end up doing that. Well, who created the God, created them to create the universe. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, hard point for me to try to work through, but I come to the conclusion at the end of the day that somebody or something caused and put into motion the big bang. And for me, that's, that's as far as I'm willing to go. I'm not willing to say it was a God or a set of gods, but I am willing to say that something happened to set it in motion. And that's where I have to leave it, I guess. But there is an option to say like that there is an uncaused cause, right? Is that right. what you're referring to? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I'm kind of more open-minded with it, if that makes sense. Um, again, because all we have is argument support. We don't have, um, uh, because again, I'm, so I'm still agnostic on it then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I stay, I stay pretty relatively agnostic on on the uh, on the origins of the universe. So okay, but uh, when it comes to the origins of the universe, it, you know, and your stance on it, right? You you yourself already have a stance on dualism, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it it doesn't go, you know, you like too far to us to say that you also. Uh, you can also have your stance on on or, the or, origins of the universe yep. itself. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. I think the difference is, though, is that I can experience mine. I can't experience the beginning of the Big Bang. So that's where I kind of, you know, for my epistemology being experience-based. Mm. 
Okay, it's epistemology. Yeah, the, the, it's, so this is the what the what's uh, stopping you from making a, a conclusion, philosophical conclusion for yourself about the origins of the universe, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. you know it's not as strong as your as because you have a, a strong epistemological, I guess, uh, experience of, yeah, of your existence and your mm -hmm. personality and identity so that's why you, you have a more stable i guess uh conclusion to that so um yep. so what is how does your epistemology work i guess i mean like a method what's your method yeah sure so um i uh i'm very big into logic when it comes to my classes anytime i can find a logic class to take other than like symbolic logic. I do not like symbolic logic, but you know, like practical reasoning, critical thinking, stuff like that, classes like that, I really enjoy. Um, partly because I am uh, kind of like a mix between both uh, an empiricist and a rationalist. Um, the way I see it is that neither can work without each other, essentially. Are you evidentialist? Um, um, evidentialist. Um, no, I, I don't think I would call myself necessarily okay. evidentialist. Okay. Um, so for me, it's more like I'm looking at um, when when you create when you're using uh, a rationalist is creating arguments and they think that truth can be found in pure reason in reason alone. Um, but those reasons come from either an inductive realization about the world or an experience in some way. And that's where I'm coming from. Like, uh, like Descartes, the classic again is, is I think, well, he experienced that he thought. So that's how that premise came about. So you're saying that Descartes, the ultimate rationalist, his whole creator Grissom is contingent on an, an empirical conclusion. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Hmm. Let's break it down. So when you say like a, like a phenomenon, you're you're sort mm -hmm. of saying this uh, qualia, right? That that um, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. So so how? Okay, so there 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 is this abstraction, you know, that we owe our minds is capable of love, and we sort of uh, you know group categorize things into gr groups, and uh, one group is is our personality, the identity, but of course, as you said, there is actually no us, right? There's just these collective emotions and and every you know like uh, mm -hmm. nerves that are just uh, electric. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go that. Far. Far, I would I wouldn't say that there's not a self in that way. Uh, there's not a there's not like the, the enduring like I can't say right now that I am me, because I literally just said that, and I can't guarantee that the me that said that is the me that's me now. That that's that's all. It, it's that enduring like as far as like the me that has that electrical impulses. I'm not so worried about that. I'm worried about that persistence over time. Not so much. Mm. Uh, so, so not so much into into uh, the ontology, but more yeah. so into the the chronological continuation of that specific. Yes. Uh, yes. The, yeah, the identification of of you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a it's lot a of philosophical topic. terms that I'm using. <laughs> okay, it's a it's a difficult topic. I, I get this it, is but... a really good episode. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, so, but uh, so, how then? You know, can 
using your personality how then can one arrive at the truth right because of if there you know this you that you can't guarantee when you know, mm-hmm. it comes to in relation to time doesn't exist mm-hmm. but of course mm-hmm. it does ontologically exist like how right, can right. you arrive at truth when yeah. when your own logical conclusions rely on this on this uh mm-hmm. you know on the events and phenomenon that I have to rely on like and more so empiricism as well yeah yeah it's i'm actually really glad that you asked this question i'm actually just finishing a paper uh that's uh, it's titled <laughs> drawing conclusions about truth from aristotle piro and hegel um, oh. I, i'm using i'm using a a, a term that, that i'm i don't know if it's ever been used before but it's what i'm calling it is uh consideratism um so the, the idea of consideratism is just like you said how are we supposed to know well that's an it's a conclusion drawn by Piro, who again said that there's equally uh, valid and strong arguments for both sides of any issue um and aristotle says that truth lies between those two extremes and hegel says that we're well we have to we, we arrived at it now because there was two different extremes that worked to like had that conversation in the dialectic that ended up creating that synthesis of what we have now. So what my idea of truth is, is that there's not really a way for us. I actually, uh, in the paper, I talk about uh, using truth to actually mean, if we define it this way, as our best current understanding, not necessarily a pure objective truth, because I also follow from Kant with those rose-colored glasses and that we are, the, the nominal world, the world that it actually is, is obscured by our perception of it. Mm. Um, that, that's yeah. all we have. So consideratism, mm-hmm. what it does is it, it looks at all of the different arguments that are valid and, and strong or uh, cogent. And what we do is we use them and consider, like we remove how we actually currently feel or think about any ish- about that issue. And we uh, take that other view then into account, this new view that comes about, and we incorporate it into our already existing view. So like the classic mm-hmm. example is, as we've talked about within, uh, uh, you know, materialism, idealism and dualism. Well, dualism is that midway point or that like uh, understanding between idealism and, uh, and, and materialism. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have pure objective truth, but I do think it makes it so that we're a little bit closer, uh, even if we're never really going to hit the mark. Uh, it's not sticking on one side of the ends of the spectrum, but it's including both of them to find somewhere in between there mm. to have a little pieces of each side of the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this sense, like um, consideratism is more into just sort of settling for what you for the synthesis that you know, like uh, yes, settle for the synthesis exactly. <laughs> That's, that's, no, I couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that that took a lot of brain power, but yes, okay. And, and, but I, I know for all the, for the audience there that's not into uh, you know that they're not familiar with the uh, philosophical terms. Um, let's let's uh, sort of separate first. Uh, you know, like break it down for them. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> and so uh, when you you know the the basic terms here that you know one of one of those is phenomenal and nominal. Can you sort of explain it? Yeah, yeah so so this came from f- the phenomenal and the nominal worlds are something that Kant brought up. His idea was that we are in a position where we experience things, right? So I see things, I can touch things, I have these senses, right? Uh, mm-hmm. 
he says the question then is is what i'm seeing actually the thing that it is mm. well what he realizes is that i can't leave my body and experience it directly i have to do it through my senses that's all that i can do it with so for him the nominal world is this thing where it's the world as it actually is yeah the pure objective world that nothing can touch basically mm, mm. the phenomenal world is the world that we experience the nominal world through we it gets filtered through our all of our senses uh so the nominal world has an effect on the phenomenal world the mm. world that we experience but that's that filter that that happens well uh, there's sort of like uh you know uh i would i would, wouldn't call it like uh, it is sort of an inception happening here you know in terms <laughs> of like uh for example the your our mind is is has a there is i guess has a sort of a direct link to the nominal world because mm-hmm. uh and it is sort of uh would you say that the mind as you know because it you are there's a dualism here would you say that the mind is a part of the nominal world be or because but uh or is it like separate or is it that's a good mutual? question what is it that's a good question you know i would say that uh because i do think that the uh, uh there was a great argument that i saw once that said that like the soul as an example is something that generates the uh the brain power to make the personality um essentially you know like there's a there's an underlying mechanism to life right that was kind of their their main argument and while that was uh not entirely convincing to me what i will say is that it, it did have some good points to point out that um you know with us being a person we have to generate a mind from some method obviously you know if we get brain damage or something like that our our minds uh like our perception of the world changes or something along those lines so for me it's like i think that there's some sort of means to generate the generator if that makes sense brain is the generator but then there's something there's the gasoline you know that has to keep the generator running and while a lot of people also you know you know just talk about food and stuff like that if you don't feed your mind as well then same kind of concept so uh that that's kind of the way i see it is that there's a generator that does it but then there's a there's a fuel mm. to that generator so in this sense though um i think that how you define differentiate phenomenal from nominal is different from the immaterial to the material they sort of uh, overlap each other and uh, it's yeah it's it's not it's not the same thing right right so, right right yeah so the the mind is actually sort of both a phenomenal thing and a nominal and sort of nominal also some parts exactly. of it exactly you can think of it this way is that um you know when we uh say justice justice is a perfect example of this if we uh, like we have the idea of justice and we like justice then isn't a real thing right but then if we serve justice justice is a real thing and in, in action it's in that motion right and as much as i'm not really one of those types to say that like a personhood so i don't want this to get misconstrued i'm not the type to say that that personhood is a um is some is is in is all about a state of motion um what i what i do want to point out is that there's that like it there's that def- with justice you can see it in there definitely where you know justice can be served and then you have justice but justice is also a concept so it's not they're not there it's almost like there's two versions of justice if that makes sense there's but they interlink with each other 
Yeah, but justice is as, as a whole has has the both substances, you know, the material and the in, in the material exactly know, embedded into its uh, essence. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. um, I, I, let's sort of recap here, right? Uh, that we've sort of covered a lot of complicated stuff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so uh, hmm. so uh, you know, your, your metaphysics is that you. Uh, your in terms of you you know the your your mm-hmm. personality you know do, you don't mm-hmm. really believe that there is a there's a you in the sense that of a chronological you know chronological timelines kind of sense that you can injure yourself right right it's it's kind of i just don't want i i mean i can't guarantee there was yeah, you can't guarantee. Yeah, and then the rest of the right term, and then and but there is an ontology, ontological you, and also mm-hmm. but and, but the you is is more or less the mind, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. but it but the mind also involves the the uh, the non yeah the unconscious also and of course the uh, sort of the the both the uh, body and the immaterial you. Right, mm-hmm. the, so mm-hmm. so and you can't really separate a mind from the body, right? It, it's all. It, it, well, can you though? In, in in your definition? Yeah, that that's a good question because what, the way I see it is um, that when we, uh, you know, this is going to get into my speculative view of what happens after death, right? So a lot of times we'll point point that out because they'll they'll recognize that and they'll say something along the lines, well then how can you be a person of faith if your mind has to be generated by the, the brain? And while I say that is true, I also don't think that the, I think, you know, if I was to point out Wittgenstein and say, if we just had an understanding of what our definitions were, then we would be able to not argue. Um, and for me, when it comes to this is I'm seeing the brain as a word that we use attached to, you know, what that organ is. And for me, while that's still technically true, I don't think the brain actually goes away. Uh, like after we die, after we de- decompose, after everything, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, all of that, our brain isn't gone. It just transformed into something else. Um, so that's 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 where that ends up going with, with you know, because a lot yeah. of times people do point that out. Yeah, like when you die, you know, like the, the, the atoms in your brain is still the same thing, like when you're alive. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, but it's just, you know, there's that change that, but okay. Other than that, um, hmm. so let's move into sort of the, the ethics here, the, you know, meta ethics. And so what is good? What is uh, evil? Hi, it's John Taffer from Bar Rescue. Did you know the second building in America was a tavern? When I built my new restaurant franchise concept, Taffer's Tavern, I thought back to the roots of what makes a tavern a tavern. Timeless character. All while delivering an unbelievably delicious food and beverage experience. That paired with my 40 plus years in the industry provides a clear roadmap to success. Do you have what it takes to be a Taffer's Tavern franchisee? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Visit franchise.tafferstavern.com. Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. And, and um, mm-hmm. so in, in your frame, or more, you know, framework, 
Yeah, yeah. So ethics is actually one of my favorite fields, um, primarily because um, I've had instances in my life where I'm always trying to figure out currently, even though that it's only a memory, whether I did the right thing or not. You know, um, uh, without getting too much into it, let's. Uh, I had like a passing in the family that maybe I could have changed, um, or maybe I could have had some sort of effect on. And I think a lot of people that that go through um, a death in the family end up having this kind of thought. So I don't find myself too out of character with it. But mm-hmm. um, without digressing too much, is that my ethics is something that comes back to that consideratism where we have to consider all of these factors. They all have really good arguments. Um, I really like. Uh, I, I really like the, the, the classic, like Jer- Jeremy Bentham, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Um, that, that utilitarianism, I think, is very valuable. Um, but I think that different ethical theories have to be placed in different, different um, instances. So I don't think that you should just stick to one ethical theory all the time. Um, I think that different ethical theories have a better play in certain instances. Like, uh, you know, I mean... Uh, when, when we're talking about like Kant again, and he was talking about his ethics with the ontology, you know, applying a general rule universally, um, you know, he had the rebuttal of, well, what if, you know, you're hiding a friend and a murderer comes over and says, you know, oh, uh, are you hiding your friend? And Kant kind of doubled down and he said that you have to tell the person uh, yes, because you wouldn't be respecting their autonomy anymore. And so like there's instances where uh, like, I just don't think that's very convincing. Um, but then also same thing with utilitarianism where it's like, yeah, I mean, the greatest number or the greatest happiness for the greatest number sounds great until we start talking about being on a lifeboat with five other people and deciding if we should cannibalize one of them to survive. Mm. And so it's like, you know, th- there's different instances for different ethical theories. And I can't quite tell you what it is that causes me as, a, as, a, as an example to determine what ethical theory to use in what certain uh, situations but I do have a sense um, and it's something that I'd like to explore more is, mm-hmm. is that this ethical theory is better for here and this ethical theory is better for here. Yeah. But I, I find that very problematic really like, um, you know, if, if, because like the purpose of developing an ethical theory is, you know, mm-hmm. you, at least you have something both coherent and consistent to, 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 you know, to share to the world that and they will, we would sort of unite and apply it mm-hmm. and then have that. And, uh, so that, you know, in the, in, and so in, I guess, uniformity and mm-hmm. in our decision-making and measurement of what is good and evil, right? Because, right. because if, if, uh, there is that uh, there is okay there are many use, useful and uh, you know ethical theories that are some would be may effect, more effective in this situation and another mm-hmm. would be more effective in another situation as you said but in terms of like uh, which one will we use and who actually determines right. which one is better for this you know then that some that's a uh, sort of a very subjective and you know, I I I'm not, I don't want to go into like the ob- objective versus subjective, yeah, yeah. but in terms of prac, I guess it's just a main like mainly you know prag- pragmatic mm-hmm. purposes. It's no, uh, yeah a more uniform medical and you know uh, uh meta ethics. Uh, you know, uh, I guess ethical framework is actually I guess for me would be would be a lot better than just, you know, like, uh, oh, let's use this for this and that for that because it, 
then it, anyone can if anyone can do that then what's the point of actually you mm-hmm. know de- determining what is right or wrong right like for example right, for right. Hit, let's say hitler right like uh, how can mm-hmm. how how can i as an individual say that hitler was wrong but maybe because like if you know for hitler you know he thought that you know ex- uh, exterminating the jews was uh, was much better because he was using this ethical framework compared to others mm-hmm. so it was mm-hmm. it was his decision and i you know and so if from my framework that that you know uh I'm using the same thing he is because uh, I recognize right. that there are other is you know it, it, it depends really so so uh what do you think about this like yeah definitely yeah so I, I I've heard that one uh, a few times and um, my problem isn't necessarily that um, it because it, it you're right it, there are some inconsistencies there but when we think of what ethics is and it, and what where it kind of stems from, uh, it stems from a subfield called value theory. Uh, value th- theory holds two different prominent uh, subfields of philosophy. One is ethics and the other is aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and so when we really look at where it came from and it's from value, right? So um, when we're, and I'm, I'm kind of generalizing here, but I think that when we talk about values, um, a lot of people have different views of value um, and it tends to be a little bit subjective when it comes to values as a whole. Um, but without getting again too much into whether it's subjective and I don't really think it's subjective first of all, but that that's just where it's stemming from is that there's going to be almost as many different views as there are people. Um, but we could look at this in the, in the, in the lens of what I was, uh, what I've been writing on is, is consideratism, uh, in that, like, you know, you look at these different things and, uh, like that's my, basically it's my consideratist, consideratist argument for why we would choose these different different views for whenever we need to because um, really trying to put those all together trying to put them all together into one consideratist view would be incredibly difficult and it's still yes. something i'm working on i'm, I'm willing yeah. to admit that but but it's something that i think that can eventually happen um but the idea is essentially that we have to figure out what that underlying cause is to decide mm-hmm. when one theory is better than another I don't know what it is yet. I'm not there, but I do have this sense that it that th- there is something underneath mm. that that's going to determine what theory one should be using, mm. which would then make it more objective so that you would know. Uh, basically, I see all ethical theories as a tool to get closer to what you should be. Not mm. necessarily that it determines goodness or, or evil, uh, just that it's that tool, kind of like uh, yeah. Bentham again said yeah, that, just a tool. Uh, okay. that he could have, yeah, yeah, Bentham thought that he had, he could make, you know, uh, a, cal- a, a kind of, a kind of calculus mm. to determine happiness of people. Uh, and so I see it kind of in that way with all of the different theories is that they're yeah. kind of a catalyst. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if you put it that way, okay, uh, you know, uh, no problem <laughs> with me, actually. Okay, so it's just a tool, yeah, and uh, you yep. know, but in but in this sense, of course, like a, a tool, it, but you know, like uh, you know, a knife in the hands of a chef, it's mm-hmm. it's super useful, but in the, in, in the hands of a of an evil person, you know, right. like it's it's uh, it's going to it can be used in 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 a, in a bad way as well, but of course, mm-hmm. it, so. It, uh, well, I'm not, I guess uh, I want to go back to the consideratism because because uh, this is really interesting. Like uh, you applied it to your, to metaphysics, and mm-hmm. you were able to apply it to the to uh, metaethics. So, 
so um, considerateism is actually more of a like a like a process, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I actually, uh, in my in in my paper, I talk about how uh, you know there's normally a um, there there's a really big contradiction, as somebody would point out, in consideratism, mm -hmm. and that is that uh, if if you have to accept, if you have to not care what your view is currently and accept what another view is then you would no longer be a consideratist if, if their argument is against consideratism. And my response to that is that, yeah, that would be true if consideratism was a, like a viewpoint to actually have and every consideratist had not. the same view. But it's not, exactly. It's more of a, more of a tool and a process um, of determining what could possibly be closest to truth rather than accept it itself as true this is a, this is a lot of this is a, uh, it's 7 a.m in the morning <laughs> and i did not expect this but it is awesome man. thank you okay uh okay so um that was a bit of, of into the philosoph philosophical side but in terms of the norse buddhism that's mm -hmm. something i i cannot pass, let you know <laughs> let pass so uh how how did you become a you know like decide to be that because you're you're yeah. you, uh, obviously your parents had a much different i guess belief you know like mm -hmm. the crystal pagan and uh yep. So what is a Norse Buddhist? What do you believe? Everything. Can you tell, tell us sure, about it? Sure, yeah. Um, so when it comes to my Norse Buddhism, I um, look at a few different factors that kind of set up um, a bunch of different things. I'm actually pulling something out real quick here because I actually have a few notes on it that I wanted to bring up. Um, but uh, essentially, I got into it because they were the gods that I seen that had what would be working best for me. Um, but I also see Buddhism as like a practice, if that makes sense. Not something that you necessarily are trying to use for an afterlife, but more so as something that will allow uh, allow you to have more peace. Um, there, there's generally, uh, if anybody knows uh, much about Buddhism, there's generally four um, noble truths. Uh, in the and they go like this. The first one would be uh, all life contains some sort of suffering and that suffering is caused by desires and attachment. Uh, so therefore to end suffering and desires and attachment, um, they say they consider, they call that nirvana. Um, and then four, you, you uh, end those desires and attachments by doing a full path. But I kind of switch this around and I say, uh, this is kind of like my four noble truths in a way. Um, is that life is all about suffering. Okay, so I keep that and that that suffering is caused by desires and attachment. Um, and then if you want to end suffering end desires and attachment, but you can't end all desires and attachment, that's impossible. Um, so there will always be some sort of suffering, no matter what, even if you want to end all of your desires and attachment, Whoa. we can, we can, we, we can lessen or maximize a relief of suffering though, by following, uh, basically it's a condensed version of the eightfold path, uh, which is basically just have the best intentions, do our best and meditate. Um, now, a lot of people will say, well, where do the Norse gods come in on this? And that is in suffering. Yeah. Uh, so the gods, uh, essentially for me, um, they kind of weave our web of fate. So I am kind of a determinist in a way. I'm more of a soft determinist. Um, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they weave yeah. our fate and they incorporate a lot of suffering as a means for us to learn, uh, for us to overcome it, uh, to give things satisfaction. 
So it's kind of like, you know, they always talk about like the problem of evil for God. Um, well, this is kind of the problem of suffering, but oh. this is how I've overcome it. Yeah. So I'm, my, my answer, like how a lot of people say that, that uh, there's evil because of free will, they might say, or they'll say because, um, because there, it's a test. So there's evil for you to test to overcome it, some people will say. And that's the one that I take for suffering is that the gods do add this suffering to our lives for us to become better people so that we can overcome it. I, w I want you to use uh, another term for gods here because, you know, a lot of people might misunderstand what you mean by God, by like the Norse gods, sure. because they're, they're probably like really imagining like, uh, like real, gods and the gods. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what do you mean by like Norse sure. gods uh, and and, they, and they, there being the, like the what suffering is? side of things? Yeah, sure. So the way I see them, see all gods is, um, again, this is going to sound crazy, but I see them a lot like Santa. They exist in our mind. Uh, they, they, that's that's undeni undeniable, just like how, you know, even like Pokemon, they exist, they're real, they're in our mind. Um, so really, you can see your like as far as I'm aware or as far as I'm concerned, I see myself as that being that does these things. Um, and I essentially generate the gods. Or they, the gods manifest themselves in me, so to speak. So when I think of them that way, that's where that suffering comes. It, suffering comes from within, from the gods giving it to you from the fate of your, basically you could say biochemistry. Uh, that's what we'll say for the, for the, all tents and purposes because otherwise it just gets too convoluted but we'll on a basic level it's it's on based on that that's where the determinism comes from but they exist in there um in that in that mind state which causes suffering okay uh i guess uh if you if you know if uh they're equivalent to uh santa in terms of ontology and uh so santa has a description mm -hmm. right like uh he's this you know uh uh, fat guy that goes into your in, goes inside your uh, uh, roof, <laughs> goes under yeah, and yeah, has right. reindeer and everything, and brings gifts. So, what are the gods in in your Norse Buddhism? Yeah, sure. So, I think that uh, any depiction that one makes of the gods, as long as they pulled it from their mind, is a valid description of the gods, um, because the gods are in their mind. So, however they see the gods is however their gods are. So, like my say my uh christian god is not the same christian god as yours um i mean they are in a more ethereal sense but uh our depiction our phenomenal our phenomenal experience of them is all that we've got so it draws back into philosophy i guess a bit but uh it, it's it's that phenomenal way so for me the way i describe them and the way that i see them is i depict them as how they're just generally depicted you might even see i mean I don't see any horns or anything like that because that actually uh, was not historically accurate. But um, so I, I see them, you know, with the big beards, with all the like all the stories and tales that have been told about them um, from the Edas, the Norse Edas, and the Havamal. Um, those are kind of like our versions of the Bible, even though I really don't want to call it that because it acts very differently than the Bible. Um, but how they're described in there is generally how I try to envision them and the way that I envision them is not going to be the same as somebody else's just like how you know there's plenty of different depictions of mm. what Jesus actually mm. looked I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't actually equivalent uh you know call this an equivalent to our religion I, I this is I, I feel like this is more of just a therapy therapy 
in in terms of of how you are you are you're mm-hmm. using it like because like uh in, if it's a therapy you know it doesn't actually have to be like objective objective truth mm-hmm. you know like in terms of nominal or reality you know because mm-hmm. uh because if you know they i guess to you or in by your definition they are in fact real that yeah like mm-hmm. because they're in their minds like pokemon mm-hmm. santa they they have this sort of anthology but they're not real like real like us real you know in the same le- level of ontology so I, i wouldn't say it's a religion right so in terms of i would call it sort of like a therapy because it allows you to 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 uh, reach this uh, this meta ethical mm-hmm. goal of like well being and happiness that you know that you uh, that you what you would want so and uh, this, you find it very effective to have this Norse Buddhism you know it, and apply it in your life I, I would mm-hmm. uh, would you say that sort of uh, I'm putting it in a wrong way? What so do you think? so there's um uh, you know a lot of people when they talk to Buddhists um, they'll say that it's not a religion and for for them they're like well for me it's a religion I don't know what else to mm-hmm. tell you that's mm-hmm. that's yeah, how I'm yeah. feeling I'm just not concerned with the afterlife um, yeah. like that's that's the way the Buddhist sees it and that's where that comes from a little bit for me but mm-hmm. at the same time when you're taught one thing that I found really interesting was that you had said that. Uh, so for me, the gods exist, but not like I exist, right? Yeah. And I think that's uh, that's kind of a misunderstanding with my uh, with my uh, view of personality and identity. So again, when I come back to identity, I'm not. I don't even really necessarily exist, right? I exist in this. I exist in the same way that the gods exist. So we're on the left. Me and the gods are on a on a same playing field. We're, oh. we're in that same living world. Whoa! Oh wait. Okay. So like. Um... You know, you you as a, as the the mind that is you, exactly. Is, you know, is 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 just you know in terms of its ontology, is actually just uh, is immaterial thing, right? Mm-hmm. And when you conceptualize, uh, you know, you think of these or imagine these gods in your mind, they're also then immaterial and in the same exactly. substance as mm-hmm. as the mind that is you. So they do the on thing. the same mm-hmm. thing. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yep. Hmm. I don't know what to say, but um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's a lot to take in. But okay, all right. So, uh, so um, impl- application in in, in your mm-hmm. daily life, uh, how do you live as a Norse Buddhist? What does it mean to be a Norse Buddhist? And you know the consequences yeah. in social. Uh, of course, uh, stigma. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know that there's a there is a lot of stigma. Even it, it, it's it's a tough fit for uh, if you're a Norse Norse Buddhist because if you go to a you know if you go go to uh, talk to a group of Norse people, then they're going to be like, well, we we don't agree with you. And then if you go to a Buddhist camp, they're going to be like, what are you doing? Like you're not Buddhist. So I'm they would neither of them would consider me as part of the in group with them if that makes sense. Um, there is a small niche of us. We do exist. We're out there. Um, just not, we don't really have our own thing because there's just not enough of us to really create an actual foundation of a group. Um, but for me in my daily life, the way that this kind of culminates is really just like anytime I'm, it, it, it does, it, it, you mentioned something about ther- like it's a therapy in a way, and it is very much helpful in this because um, I look at suffering in a different light. I look at suffering as something to overcome, something that is put there to better me, 
to make me a better person, to make me think harder, to be a better philosopher, to be a better, um, you know, better family member, better everything, right? And if I overcome it, then it's a means for me to show that I'm progressing. Um, and if I and if I don't, then I learn that I need to. I still have things I need to work on. Um, the goal for me is like as Piero said, for ataraxia, a state of, of peace, uh, or you know, some other people have heard of uh, eudaimonia, um, like uh, or rather like a state of like just like calm. Um, and that's kind of what I think my goal is. I'm not saying that that is the goal, but I do know it's what I want. Um, and that's kind of why I see it that way. So for me, that that pain and suffering is kind of central to it, but it's not as sad as it is in Buddhism. I think it's kind of sad in Buddhism because in Buddhism, they're kind of like, there's nothing you can do about it besides kill all of your desires and attachments. And for me, I think that some desires and attachments are definitely good. Um, and so, you know, you still want to go after something knowing there's going to be suffering that you have to overcome. Um, you know, like if I, you know, if I'm having a hard day at work and I'm pursuing it because I have a goal in mind with it, any suffering that comes with that, I know it's something I have to, it's something that's placed there specifically for me to overcome. And uh, that I, I believe, of course, that, you know, if it works for you, then I have to uh, respect that. And of course, I different, believe differently. Right, right. Yeah. That's, and that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, okay. So question though, um, we, we, we went to from uh from your metaphysics media ethics and then i sort of ask you and i ask you about the this uh your faith which is norse mm -hmm. buddhism but the uh you sort of introduce a lot of elements of buddhism like suffering that mm -hmm. and and you you know and it is that it is it's impossible to to uh to eliminate desires and what that and whatnot but like uh, I have, we have to ask first, like, is there a thing, a suffering from your metaphysics, from the, from, you know, start from the starting point where you, you, you know, you introduce your metaphysics and metaethics, is there a thing as desire? And because mm -hmm. if there's no you, then there is no suffering and there is no desire. So the, the, mm -hmm. the path, the, the, the noble path that you introduce, uh, is actually, doesn't actually have any premise to hold on. Yeah. So. Uh, again, this is going to come back to that idea of it exists, but it doesn't, right? And I, I'm not trying to sound wishy-washy, but uh, in that same way of how I exist, but I don't, um, there's the same thing with suffering. Just like it, I see suffering and I see desires a lot like I see justice. If we're sitting here talking about desires and talking about suffering, it's the ethereal desire. It's the ethereal suffering. But we experience specific indications of suffering. And just like how justice can get served, and then we then we can see justice existing, the same way that it doesn't really exist until it manifests. So suffering exists oh. as it pops up. So in a way, like um, so, what happens here is I'm seeing something like a, like a meta. This this uh, this is a meta observation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <That's> <laughs> okay. So so okay. Yeah, I get what you get your point, right? Like uh, same as Santa, same as the gods, right? Mm -hmm. The the desire, suffering. You know, they're in they're in this uh, same substance as as the mind that is us, mm -hmm. right? From your perspective, yep. okay. But so so what I notice here is that. Um, in terms of intentionality, you are you are familiar, yep, I guess, yep. uh, 
so intentionality is that um, you know in in our universe, right? Uh, our consciousness is able to sort of defi- go to a certain direction, right? Mm. And actually, uh, and arrange you know the the universe in in the and our, our, you know, and the atoms and everything into the, the specific path that, you, that we want, right? Right, and there, and in terms of intention, and so um, what I'm, what I'm noticing here is that there is something that exists in, in this universe, which is an, a nominal thing, and then it, it's sort, it's sort of an agent that that causes these these uh, immaterial things to exist however it wants mm-hmm. it's like a, it's like a child playing with uh, roblox and creating anything yeah. out of this world that anything that you know into the limits of its imagination and it and the, what, what it and uh, so what it's creating the roblox things you know that, it, that it's playing with it could be any religion it could be uh, any faith or any belief system or any uh, crazy stuff that could exist so like uh like a jedi like a star wars mm-hmm. narnia mm-hmm. anything that, oh, yeah. that could actually exist mm-hmm. so is this is that possible then in you yeah. from your framework so uh, uh it comes back to that thought right uh where we're talking mm-hmm. about that phenomenal world right i'm not yeah. here to sell to, to sell you that that is what is the case right what i can mm-hmm. tell you is that my mind is the only thing that's here that i know of for absolute certain and i know that those things exist in that mind so you know just i think you made you made a really good analogy when you were talking about uh like the roblox and stuff mm-hmm. like that yeah. um you know I, I was thinking like legos right so yeah legos if kid, yeah if, legos. If, if a kid is playing with legos they can make whatever they want and it is that thing right um it, it's kind of in the same kind of vein there like you know a lot of times people will ask me well oh so so, uh, you know, I'll hear from the Norse crowd. They'll be like, so you believe that the Christian God exists? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I have an idea of him in my mind and my mind is a real thing. So yeah, it, the Christian God exists. I just mm. prefer to choose the ones that work best for me. But this isn't a sort of like a solipsism thing, right? Like it's different. Yeah, it's it's slightly different. I mean, there is a. I wouldn't say I'm full on solipsist, but I definitely do have a skeptical bone in my body where I'm yeah. like, I'm not willing because obviously on a on a practical level, I, you know, and this this is obviously generalizing, but I think that solipsism really is only great in theory, like as an idea, but it's not like I don't think any solipsist really is truly a solipsist if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah, yeah i think that they're they're just more looking at it as this possible idea that could be possible but they're not really acting like it's true um so for me like i'm accepting that they don't ex- they don't they don't there might be like that it. one true solipsist yeah, out they, there they, <laughs> they, they're, they're out there they're they exist, but, but by and large people that bring up that argument the solipsist argument they're not solipsists themselves so for me all i'm doing is following kant and saying that the only thing i can 100 percent guarantee is that i exist mm. now beyond that i can't say that this table in front of me is a table or that it's it's really here i mean it it, but i can guess most likely that it'll be here you know george berkeley um made a really good point and he said uh he said to descartes that well because descartes a guy that that basically invented solipsism uh of course he thought that it was a dream instead of you know the matrix um 
or a brain in a vat. But George Berkeley said, I kick this rock thusly. Um, and by that, he meant, I have that effect, like we were talking about intentionality. I have that effect on the world in front of me right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so for me, it's like, yeah, maybe the rock doesn't exist. Um, but it's also <laughs> something that, that I like about postmodernism. I know that there's a lot of talk that's negative around it, but its basic premise is solid, uh, which is basically that the analytics before that were talking about describing the world that is now. And the postmodernists said, well, that's great, but why don't we create the world around us? And that's what po postmodernism really kicked off as. And so Berkeley was creating the world around it by displacing that rock. And mm -hmm. so while we are still going to agree that we're going to call it a rock, we can't guarantee that the rock oh, is okay. actually there. Yeah. So it's I'm, still there for yeah. both of us. But Okay. But there's a very different uh, out of topic subject, but I, I, I do want to cover it because um, you're going somewhere here and it has social, uh, you know, uh, implications. implications. <laughs> um, gender. Right. Uh, this, and you, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, con construction here and, uh, you know, for some postmodern concepts, uh, mm -hmm. postmodernist concepts. Is, is it, do you mean like uh, this? Could this be like a, like a uh, metaphysical, you know, philosophical foundations for how, you know, the LGBT community could rationalize their mm -hmm. sexuality and, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the actions that they have for for how they identify themselves sure yeah so a lot of times there's a lot of rebuttals to mm -hmm. um, postmodernism and they're not without merit they really aren't um, what i will say though is that on the fundamental level where we're creating the world that it that we that ought to be so to speak um we have to also come to an agreement on what ought to be uh and that's kind of the main point that we have to kind of come to um, when we're talking about, um, and personally me, I don't really have anything against the LGBTQ community myself, but I understand that there's a lot of people that don't. So we have to come to this understanding of, we have to agree what ought to be to create it, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, one last question, Dave, because this has been a great, you know, adventure for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I myself, I'm actually following you and, uh, you know, sort of, considering for myself what if dave is right you know like uh and and uh this is really how reality is you know <laughs> i do that and <laughs> that's cool. a danger of my job here but uh so so dave uh so being this this Norse Buddhist, you know, and uh, of course maybe uh, the frontliner for the cons cons consideratism in the twenty first century. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so where where uh, what are your plans? I guess and the you know like uh, any direction that yeah. you would want to go to, for, you know, moving forward. Yeah. So um, like as far as furthering what I want to do, um, what I'm working on right now is uh, a thing called five minute philosophy it's where i'm just posting i'm basically posting memes daily sometimes i make them myself but then i'm also writing articles weekly on medium um but then what i'm really working towards is i am uh trying to build out classes i think that there's a problem in academia right now um that 
seems to be persistent where, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems with it. We could go over that another time, but I see problems that I don't like in academia. Mm -hmm. And so I'm building out classes and creating my own um, at the same time as uh, completing, hopefully completing grad work and uh, graduate work in philosophy. Uh, my goal is to actually talk about the ethics of lab, the impaler. Um, and I want to uh, see what was going on inside of his head and how he was rationalizing um, what he was doing. So it's interesting how we were talking about, you know, like Hitler and him mm. rationalizing what he mm. was doing. I kind of want to do that with Vlad. I'm not saying that Vlad was right in what he was doing, but I want to mm. see what what sort of logical uh, things that he could have put together to actually make what he was doing right. Yeah, because yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like everybody's got a reason for doing what they do. And like Vlad, it just interests me because it seems like there's so little. That, that there's a reason for him to do what he was doing. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm going is I'm, I'm trying to finish grad work and uh, get classes up and running outside of academia. Um, and that's kind of my goal. Well, uh, Dave, um, is there anything you want to promote, uh, you know, like a book or a YouTube channel mm -hmm. other than this uh, five minute philosophy that you're developing? Yeah, sure. So other than five minute philosophy right now i am uh i, I post articles and essays primarily essays to uh medium um i'm just under david k uh and that's kind of my main thing but then uh just look out for when my class drops uh it's going to be on udemy and i'm going to be advertising it after that's done so awesome all right well dave thank you so much for being in the show it's been awesome talking yeah. to you really. hey thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs> and uh hope you have a great day man so that's the end of it thanks for tuning in guys this is your host Elmo Ador Jr and thank you for listening in and please subscribe please follow us on Facebook please, please follow this please thanks University of Maryland Global Campus has more than 20 years experience providing affordable online education to military service members and working adults Offering low tuition, no-cost digital resources replacing most textbooks, scholarships for those who qualify, and more. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast. If you're a movie collector, you need Movies Anywhere. It pulls your favorite purchase movies from participating digital retailers into one central place so you can finally say goodbye to scattered movie collections and hello to an organized library. With Movies Anywhere, you can watch your favorite movies on any compatible device whenever and wherever you want. Ready to grow and enjoy your digital collection? Visit MoviesAnywhere.com slash welcome and register for free. Registration with Movies Anywhere required. Open to U.S. residents 13 and over.